Well, as we get started tonight, would you turn with me in the Word of God to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, we're going to look at verse 13. Before I pray, I want to read that verse to you. This is Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Paul says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's pray. I'll become tonight to give you thanks that we can commit our way into your hands. We thank you for your presence here. We thank you for the Spirit of God sent to illumine your word to us, to enable us to live in the one who is our life, Jesus Christ. And we're coming and asking you tonight to meet us as we fellowship together in your word. You know the condition of our heart. You know the need of that heart. We thank you for the perfect provision for us. And we're asking you to instruct us and meet us and enable us to glorify your name. And we're trusting you for that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> rejoice in, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And every good thing, give thanks. That's Paul's instruction. We started the very first week. Think about that. But then we ask this question. It's obvious one day. That's, that's a general statement, Paul. But how can I pray without ceasing? What does that look like? What will that work out like in day-by-day experience? And rather than give him the uh, opportunity to just describe it to us, we're asking him to, we're going to look at what he did. How did it work out for you, Paul? And so we've been We've been cherry-picking, I admit that. We are going to continue that because Paul prayed a lot. And we do not have the amount of time necessary to go step-by-step through all of Paul's prayers. But we're picking out selected prayers, asking Paul to instruct us, to bring us up in our faith into a place where we can pray like he prayed, enter into all that he had, all that he commands us to be. Now, we are in chapter 15 of the book of Romans. The prayer is a kind of an odd prayer. It, it doesn't fit Paul's typical pattern. It's interesting, it's immediately you, you see there's a, an issue here because you're in the 13th verse of the book of the chapter. 13th verse of the chapter, and this is the second prayer in that chapter. And as we saw last week, Paul gets it in. He gets his prayers in there. In a five-minute message to the Thessalonians, he prays for them six times. Paul prayed without ceasing. Typically, though, Paul prays this way. He introduces a subject. He talks about it, and he he describes the, the theology, if you would, behind it and the problems you might be having, and then he steps up and prays for you that this that God will do something to either meet you in that or illuminate you with regards to it, but his prayers are directed towards what he's talking about. In the earlier part of the chapter, that's what took place. The Roman church, again, one of the things that they wanted to discuss, he wanted to discuss, was this, that a number of them had been converted out of Judaism. A number of them are Gentiles. Their cultural background was vastly different. They were placed in one body, and in that body they had to have fellowship, and they looked at life a little differently. And so the question comes, how will these two groups who have varied opinions as to what real godliness works out like in your food, in your dress, in your day-by-day activities, in the keeping of ceremonies and all the rest. How are they going to fellowship together? And he's described that. When he finishes that, we have a typical type of Paul prayer. That's found in verse 5. All right, this is chapter 15, verse 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So that, and this is his goal, that's why he's been talking, and he's now praying that what he's been talking about will be fulfilled. So that uh, he will get to to you so that you might be of the same mind, excuse me, Uh, verse 6, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ. So his prayer is what? Now that you have seen how I think you should work together, how you should love one another, now I'm praying to God that he'll bring it to pass. So that the church, which is one, can lift up its voice together. Not, not in disharmony, not in, in uh, little sects inside of the church, but in one voice. Glorify God. That's his goal. That's a typical type of Paul prayer. In, ch- in chapter uh, 15, verse 13, we have an, kind of an atypical prayer, and every, every commentator admits this. It doesn't really seem to fit. All of a sudden, he stops and he says, Now may the God of hope. Now, the, the first thing I want you to note about that is that the word in the Greek, when it starts off with that now, is something which says, okay, let's move to another subject. Let's move on. It's not a therefore, because I've said this now, therefore I'm going to pray this way. It's bonk. That's why if you haven't, uh, New American Standard, it, it just continues the same paragraph, but in the ESV, it does actually put it in a separate paragraph, which is actually more reflective of what's going on here. That there is a, a new paragraph begins there. This is a separate thought. And so the commentators sit there and say, why is it a separate thought? What is going on here? It's a tremendous little prayer, but what does it fit with? What is he saying? All right. Now, we have this problem. It's, it's true for all of us that are trying to interpret the Word of God. I am not inside the mind of Paul. Right? I have to just take the evidence and try to figure out what he's, going, what he's doing here. I have an opinion, which I'm going to share with you. So, but again, this is an opinion. In chapter, 12, or chapter 15, verse 12, Paul finishes his argument, that is his doctrinal discussion, in the book of Romans. Last week we talked about the book of Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians takes five minutes to read the thing. But when the book of Romans was delivered, if we were the Roman church... I would get up here if I was the pastor and I would read you the entire book of Romans. That's the way it's done. I wouldn't be making comments so much as I would be just, here it is. This is what Paul wrote to us. All right. So the book was intended to be read straight through. Paul's argument in the book of Romans starts in chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed, he says. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God, not just the message of God, this is the power of God unto salvation for everybody that, that trusts in God, everyone who believes. To the Jew first, is the way he says it, and to the, and to the Greek, because he says in it, um, the righteousness of God, a way that there could be a rightness between men and God is revealed. From faith to faith, because the just, he says, live by faith. That is his opening statement of the gospel. And he will then proceed through that book to describe what the gospel is. In the first eight chapters, he's describing what the essence of the doctrine of the gospel is. In chapters thir- or, uh, 9 through 11, he discusses how God is faithful. He always keeps his word. A question comes up, which we won't go into, but about whether or not did God forget the Old Testament promises, and he argues, no, he has not forgotten those promises. You can count on God. So all this that he said is going to come to pass will come to pass. After chapter 12 to 15, he is discussing how that gospel works out in practice between us. This is how it works out in my daily living. When he gets to verse 12 of chapter 15, he is finished. The whole argument is done. After this, there's more to the book of Romans, but after it, it's a discussion of how, where he's been, how he's interacted. It's, it has to do with personal matters, and then finally a lot of greetings to his friends. But the, the argument's over. Now, what I want you to, my personal opinion, I'm looking at all this, is that what Paul's doing here, he has just gotten finished with this long description of what God has done and how it works out. And he takes a deep breath because that's the way the, the verb or the, not the verb, the connection word says. And he steps back here and he says, now, 
now. It's very interesting where he goes. Um, Paul has been arguing against his enemies, but there's no, I showed you type of attitude. There's nothing of his, I'm, I'm going to triumph over I'm going to do a victory lap now that I have proved that the gospel is real. Now he steps back from it. He says, now I'm going to pray. And here's what I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that the God of hope would fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And that because of that, in order that it might end in this, that you would abound in hope by the power of the Spirit of God. In light of all that God has done. Now let's review that. Let's just review very quickly what he says God has done. This is the, this is the book of Romans in a quick review. After he tells you that there's a gospel which tells us about the righteousness of God, which can come to a man by faith, he says, the, pro, the reason why I want you to know that is because every human being is in deep trouble. We were born in deep, deep trouble. Because every one of us, from the moment we took our first breath, was headed towards death. And that by itself isn't the big problem. The big problem is once that's occurred, then you will have, and I will have, and every human being on the face of this earth has an appointment with God. An appointment in which he will have to appear and give account for his life. That would be bad enough by itself, but here's the point. There is not one human being that has ever lived who can pass the test. The standard of judgment is the perfect righteousness of God. Anyone who is not does not measure up is condemned. That's where it starts. How about that for good news? The gospel. But that's the reality. The Bible does not hide us from the reality of human human nature because of that sin which which has caused us to or in our rebellion against god it has permeated us so deeply we are dead to god we are trapped in that all these things are listed out there this is where we are then he says this god didn't leave us in that dilemma the gospel the good news is he didn't leave us there and then comes a whole series. I don't have time to expound. I'm just going to re relate to you what, what the series is. He starts off by saying this, that God sent the Lord Jesus Christ, and in Him, He brings a total salvation to pass on our behalf. It starts with the fact that in His death, He paid the price for that sin so that it is possible for a person to trust Him and to be given the righteousness of Christ so that when He stands in that day of judgment and his peers before God, he can be in a place where God says, "He's my, it's just like my son, he's perfect. That's the beginning of it. That justifies him. That means that God says, now he is just, he is right. That also does something else for him. It's getting a little out of order here, but he goes on to say this, because he justifies us, our whole relationship with God changes. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God. The war is over between us and God. God, who was our enemy, has become our, our friend, if you would. He, we have been brought close. We've been brought near. There's different ways he describes that. That's the beginning of it. Then at the end of chapter 5, he says this. He says that just like death reigned over every human being, that was the proof that we were all in trouble, is that everybody died. There was no escaping it. You can maybe put it off. You can outrun it a little while, but you can't finally get past it. You're going to die. He says, we were under this reign of death. Now he says this, that because of what Jesus Christ has done, he's taken all those people that were completely under this reign of death and he's put them under a new reign. And that reign is the reign of grace. And just as surely, just as certainly as I will die because I am under the reign of death, I will be blessed forever because I am now under the reign of grace. One is, un, one is absolutely certain. The other is absolutely certain. That's pretty good. Then he goes to chapter 6 and he says this. You not only had a problem with the fact that you were guilty before God, you have a problem because you, complete, you are so corrupted that you keep on 
being guilty before God. That even if he wiped out all of your sins, you'd still keep going the wrong direction. But he's got an answer for that too. And what he's done is he says he's placed you into Jesus Christ. And when he died, when Jesus died, you died. And the, the outworking of the, is this. We don't have time to go into all the detail, but the outworking is this. That the day that, that the Lord died, the power of sin in my life and your life was broken. It no longer has its death grip on you. You have been freed from sin. The other side of that is this, that you're now dead to sin, but now you have a chance to know God because you are now alive to God. This is the God. This is what Paul's been talking about. All right. You're alive to God. You're not only alive to God, but your whole standard of, of, of living has been changed. It used to be the law. You had to keep that law. He says, the law's out. Law's been fulfilled. Now, what God has is he's given you his spirit. And the spirit of God within enables you to walk. Not by the law, but by the, the enabling of that spirit. This is a good, good book. You know, I, I like to teach it. It's great. Now you have the spirit of God. And when the spirit of God comes, what's he do? He brings to pass the law of God. Therefore, being justified by faith, you not only have peace with God, but... It is the purpose of God. There's no condemnation, he says, to those that are in Christ Jesus for the law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death for what the law couldn't do. That is, all those laws couldn't get me to the right place. God did, sending his own son. So now, in the spirit, I have the opportunity and the capacity by his help. Where the law never helped me, the, the spirit of God does help. And when the spirit of God comes, he tells me that I'm I'm deeply dear to God. What he, what he testifies within is that you are the children of God. Good book. And he goes on, and we're up to chapter 8 now, and it, it, it reaches its climax there, and that's important to the prayer here. It reaches a climax in the doctrine. He says, not only is that true right now, but the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. That all he can do for me on this earth is wonderful. But it is only a down payment. It is only a, it's only a hint at what he has in mind. And God is relentlessly bringing us towards that great future. You know that one of my favorite verses that you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, wealthy beyond measure. Yet for your sake, for my sake, for our sake, what? He became poor, desperately poor. You can't get poorer than Jesus was when he died. He lost everything that you can lose on this earth. That we, the reason he did that, was so that we, you and I, through that poverty, might become fabulously wealthy. And we will enter into that. Why? Because not only have we been justified and have this been technically taken care of and all these things have been broken, all the rest of it, but now we have been loved by God. And we are loved by God with a love which cannot be broken by any power in all of the, the realms that are out there. So Paul says this, it doesn't matter what happens to me and it doesn't matter who tries to, to attack me. My future is fixed because nothing, nothing ever can separate me from the love of God because I'm in Jesus Christ. How about that? That's the doctrine of the gospel. Pretty good, huh? Now, Paul is finishing up all that, and I think he's got all that in view. Now, that's about two-thirds of the book up to this point, although it's in chapter-wise it doesn't look like it, but if you actually add up the verses, that's about two-thirds of the gospel story is up to that point. And he speaks a little bit about how God is faithful with regards to his word and assures us that he didn't forget Israel. Everything he promised will be fulfilled. That's important to us because he promised us these things. It's got to be fulfilled for us too. And then he goes on to tell us how it should work out. Now he steps back. He says, in light of that, in light of that, here's what I'm going to pray for you. In light of the whole gospel, in light of all those blessings that God is pouring out, and we, we cover them very superficially. He says this, now, 
I'm going to ask God, the God of, and he calls him the God of hope. This is the only time Paul ever calls him the God of hope. It's typical when he says the God of, it's usually the God of peace. But here it's the God of hope, right? Very important word. And it is important to come back to that word that uh, we should see tonight, how, how very important it is. One commentator speaking about this said that, uh, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, Now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest is love. And we know that faith is the whole point, you know, you know the, that we are saved by faith. He said sometimes we regard hope as sort of the stepsister of the graces of God. Like it, it's there, but leave it in the back. You know, it just who knows what it's there for, but it's, it's also important. You know, <laughs> we love you and everything else. But Paul, as he finishes up and as he begins to pray, puts that front and center. Says, if you've heard what I've got to say, if you have listened to my message, this gospel, here's what you should have learned about God. He is the God of hope. And hope has to do with what's out ahead. There's no question about this. It has to do with what's out ahead. And it has to do with a confidence about what's out ahead. Now, hope is very important to the human race. Um, this week, I was I thought I'll go a little bit. I'll, I'll go do some some uh, studies. I'll, I'll I'll do a Google study. How about this? I, I don't do that sort of thing. But anyway, I'm googling along here. So, what does it say about hope? In psychology, hope is a very important concept. All right, this whole thing called hope therapy. All right, just how to, how to get hope because they recognize that the reality is that people. They fail in this life because they lose hope. That's why a suicide takes place, because you give up. There's no, there is no positive future. There is no reason to keep on going. And so they're, they're acknowledging that this has to, has to be put into somebody's life. The difficulty with them, the problem that they run into, is the only way they can put it in is by telling you about a goal you can chase. And then helping you to discipline yourself to chase the goal. And the problem with that is that the whole thing rests on whether or not you can, in yourself, fulfill that. And they start off with this, this concept that, hey, you have to look at, you have to have reasonable goals. <laughs> the point is, uh, for me to decide tonight to be an Olympic champion would probably not be a reasonable goal. I don't think they have a tiddlywinks. Uh, you know, it's about how much I could handle in Olympic sport. All right. But they don't have that. So I couldn't go that direction. So that's an unreasonable goal. So that hope out there has to be restricted by who I already am. Now, the God who is out there wants you to have hope. A perfect confidence concerning the future. And so he's going to describe how that takes place. He is the God of hope. He is the God who is the origin of hope, and He is the God to whom we look for hope. Right? So that's where He starts. God of hope. I want to go right through the prayer. It's not very complicated. That's the person that we're talking about here. Then He says, "Here's what I want that. Here's what I want the God of hope to do for you. I want Him to fill you. All right. I want Him to fill you. I'm going to talk about the filling with." Joy and peace, but what is the filling part? What does it mean to fill? Now, uh, we've already considered this. I want to just do it briefly because Paul uses this word over and over again. He likes the word fullness and fill. All right. Um, when we think about being filled with the Spirit. You need to know Paul uses that word a lot of times. So we have a pretty good idea of what Paul is talking about there. When I was a student here, um, I know that it, it happened while Mr. Kill sat on this path stage and i was in a yellow chair down there all right so i know it took grace right here and i was having trouble with this whole idea you know how can a person rejoice at all times that just i mean i'm only six months in the lord a nice thought but tough things happen how can you rejoice in the lord always how can when something terrible happens you turn around and rejoice and, and just go say well there's there's two you have, to, you have to understand your whole inner man. Paul can say this, you have to rejoice. He says, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And that one, I'm going like, ah, <laughs> that sounds like double talk to me. 
that you can be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. And I'm just going to talk about it because this, this idea of fullness comes up. Fullness has to do with the backdrop to your whole being. It has to do with the basic trend, trend of your whole being, the, the deep currents of your whole being. And so Mr. Carroll explained it this way. He said, you go, it's just like going out to the coast. Now, South Carolina is pretty far out. You have to go 60 miles off the coast of South Carolina to reach the Gulf Stream. That is a river which is actually flowing in the ocean. It's, it's going all of the time. If you're in, in Florida, you're, it's only a couple miles off the coast. You can go right out there and, and get to it. But here it's a long way out there, but it's a stream. It goes all the way up the East Coast. It flows continuously. That flow is not affected, whatever, by what happens on the surface of that water. Hurricane can come through, and it might push the surface water up against the Gulf or up against the coast, so we can have all these tidal, you know, these storm surges that come as it pushes it in. But if you went to the, if you went to the um, Gulf Stream and dropped below the surface, maybe twenty feet. It's not happening. Well, that's far enough that the wave action on the surface isn't there. It's unaffected. That, that Gulf Stream continues exactly. The, the storm doesn't blow it out of course. It just keeps on going where it's going. Its temperature stays the same, basically. Its speed stays the same. What happens on the surface is real, but it isn't finally changing what's going on before, beneath the surface. Paul is asking that the God of hope would do something for us, that he would fill us so that there would be a backdrop to our being. There would be a, an undercurrent so that when the things take place on the surface, which can be rather you know, tumultuous, this current keeps on going. All right? What is it that he wants to have underneath? And he starts off here. He wants you to fill you, bring this to pass, have this as your basic outlook, What's that? He says, fill you with joy and peace. Now on the outline there, it says this, uh, joy answers to, and again, I could put a lot of things in there. I think I put emptiness. Let me just make sure I did put that down there. All right. It answers to emptiness, right? See, the, the human experience is a rather bleak, experience apart from God. We, we, we make up our mind to have happiness, all right? We're all, we are, again, the uh, Declaration of Independence. We're the pursuit of happiness. The problem is we don't get there. We really don't get there. The pursuit of happiness is just a, a desire to, to, to feel good about the way things are going. And we try to get there by making things happen that are positive. But you can't keep it going. You cannot, you can't keep it up. Because you can't, you can't win every game. You can't be healthy every day. Your kids don't always obey. Whatever it is that just, it just keeps ruffling the waves. It keeps, it keeps arguing against it. Now, happiness is the result of a positive circumstance. All right? here at a conference recently, I think it's important that we understand this. Joy is also the result of a positive circumstance. The fact is that the Bible doesn't make a distinction between happiness and joy. It doesn't. It uses the word joy for a circumstance we would say is happy, so that when the woman lost her coin and then she found it, it says she was joyous or happy, right? That was a circumstance. That was a, it, it's not going to keep her permanently there, but he uses the same word for that as he does for Christian joy. The difference between happiness and joy is the source for the happiness that we have on this earth is temporary and fickle. The source we have for joy is permanent and without any variation. What is that source? Well, we'll come back to that in just a moment. The same thing has to do with peace, or peace answers to the problem that we have of fear. All right? 
Now, all I'm saying in, in this is that unless, okay, back off to here. Sometimes we think about peace and joy as being something God has. You know, he's got this bottle of peace, all right? And here you go. I'm going to pour peace across you. And, and all of a sudden, ooh, it's kind of like a drug that hits you. And, and you know, oh, I feel better. I don't know how drugs feel. But anyway, you know, I, I'm assuming you feel better, all right? Some of those ones like they give you when you're getting ready to have the surgery. You know, oh, wow, that feels really a womp, you know, and then you're out of here. <laughs> it's only for a second, but nevertheless, you felt here came, but it had, it has nothing to do. The thought is that it really has nothing to do with what's going on in my life. It's just he pours out peace. That is not the biblical concept. Why is it that we can have joy and peace? Why is it that we could be filled with that joy and peace? And uh, I would just suggest if you had a chance and you're, you're up to it, you have to be up to this, go and find a com- one of the commentaries by Hanley Mole on Romans. He has his studies in Romans. That's not the one. That's just some Bible studies. Or that's some Greek studies. But he has a commentary on the book of Romans. It was written at, in the Victorian period, so you have to be up to this. You have to put aside some time because it'll take you five readings to find out what he's actually saying. But it's really worthwhile. All right, his commentary on this because he stops on this prayer and he sits there for a while. And very few of the commentators do; they just go past it. They tell you the thing, but he sits there. And one of the things he says about this is that God doesn't fill you by giving it to you out here. He fills you by entering the room. By entering the room. You ever had that experience? Where someone comes, you have a problem, and you're having difficulty with a problem. You know it's kind of over your head, and somebody comes alongside of you, and it's not over their head, and they just take care of it. And the, the tension which that problem created in your soul and your being is immediately alleviated because the other person is there. They know what to do. You didn't know what to do. God doesn't bless us with joy and peace by just pouring a a joyful spirit over top of us. He gives us joy and peace by entering our life, by entering our circumstances. God himself is present. When John Wesley was dying, <laughs> he was um, he was a very he was the leader of the movement and the movement that the people his best friends were all around him and they were having a hard time with his death. He was on the bed there and he's on his way out. And he looked around at all the crying. <laughs> he said he had enough. <laughs> John Wesley was pretty strong, so he mustered it up. He was dying, so it took him a while to get there. And he, he, he got all of his energy up and he says this, as he burst this out, the best of all is God is with us. <laughs> yes. You see, to the very end, he's still encouraging the brethren. He's still doing for them what they need. Because yes, I'm leaving, but God's with us. And that's what makes this moment less than, than it's tragic. It's not sad. Because it's sad for the, again, relationships being broken. But God is with us. And he he expressed hope because he did have one more run in which he quoted his own hymn. I'll praise my maker while I have breath. And when my voice is lost in death, praise will will employ its nobler powers. When my lips are, are stilled in death. Praise will employ their nobler powers. Now that goes along with what we got to say tonight. See, God comes in and He's present. See, the Lord has promised He will never leave you or forsake you. That's what we sang about before we started. That was very appropriate hymn for the for the thought tonight. How firm a foundation, what? But the foundation isn't just that He's spoken, it's that He's there to fulfill what He's spoken. We saw that last year as we were thinking about this whole matter of the life of faith. Paul says that who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Where was the Son of God to Paul? He was right here. 
The Spirit of God was here. The Father is here. God is here. And that's what it's, that's true for us tonight. Now, if he steps into the room, if, if the Lord could suddenly, if he did, he could, but if he suddenly determined that he was going to manifest himself in this room tonight, there would be two responses possible in this room. Okay, there's two responses that are possible. If you don't know God, that would be a horrifying experience. Because His presence, because of the holiness that's involved with that, is to those who don't know Him a horrifying thing because He's angry with them all the time. It just it would be a very bad thing. That's why hell itself, it, it will at least be this. It's not going to be God there punishing them. It's the absence of God. He's going to withdraw. They're going to, people in that experience will have what they wanted. They did not want to be close to God. He will seal off his presence. Now he won't again. The other side, though, is this. If you know God tonight, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've come to him and put your faith in him, what do you think that experience will be? Well, the Bible tells us what it would be. In his presence is what? Fullness of joy. If he manifested himself, if the Lord came along and thought, here he's here right now and was sitting right beside you, that would be a joyful experience. Well, he is with us. Right? That would also answer the problem of fear, wouldn't it? If I had the Lord, if you had the Lord exactly present with you, what would you be afraid of? Think about that for the disciples. They walked on the water. He called dead people back to life. He healed every sickness that anybody, he healed sickness, let's put it that way. He outmaneuvered every one of his opponents. He's intellectually beyond them. He is more. He's ahead of everything. It'd be good to have him alongside, right? Because what problem could possibly come up that he won't be able to answer? Right? Now, Paul says this. I want the God of hope to do something for you. What's that? I want him to fill you with joy and peace. But how is he going to fill you with joy and peace? He's going to fill you with joy and peace by a manifestation of who he is to you. That joy and peace become mine, not when he pours it across here, but he says joy and peace in believing. Believing what? Right? In believing what? In believing the gospel. You see, this experience of joy and peace that he's talking about here answers to what he started off with. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says. What? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. I like to, to kind of mess up the Romans class when I start off and say, okay, if it's the power of God and salvation, what are you saved from? It's, a, it's amazing how we kind of, well, it's good. I'm, I'll have better experience. And, you know, I'll be, I won't go to hell. You know, sort of. What does it mean to be saved? He's describing it to you. Now, there's different ways you can think about this in your power and your ability to get pet. But here's the inward experience of a saved man, of a of a man who has taken hold of the fullness of salvation. What's he have? A backdrop in his whole life of joy and peace. That is the purpose of God for every person in this room. Every person. Doesn't matter what's happening for you tonight. His purpose for you, the reason he brought the salvation to pass Again, has, there's all sorts of things you're going to be delivered from, and we can look at it that way, but is that you should have a backdrop experience in your heart of joy and peace. Right? And it comes because you believe. You see, when did I get the beginning of peace? I was 21 years old. When I committed my life, I put my life in the hands of the Savior. And it wasn't very long before I began to realize that now I have peace with God. That tension that had been on my soul with regards to what does God think of me begins to depart and I begin to have joy. I begin to have peace. The, the fear of death begins to disappear. 
What other fears could I have? I could have fears concerning my ability to continue. It was one of the things I was converted, but I had started a lot of things in my life that I didn't finish. I don't know if you might be one of those people who, when you commit yourself to it, it's going to happen. I was not. I committed myself to a lot of patterns that I finally said, yeah, I don't think. Now I've come to Christ. And I've committed myself to Him. Am I going to follow? That was a big question to me. Will I be able to keep it up? Will I be able to finish out what I've started? For me, that concept of a reign of grace was real important. He who began the work will finish it. When do I come to peace? I come to peace when I believe that. When I take hold of the one who's right beside me. He's he's right here. He's, He's in my... He, I am in Him. He's in me. When I take hold of that and commit to Him the future of my salvation, I come to peace about it. Right? Because He who began the good work will finish it. I'm under the reign of grace. Right? Got it? When I look at now again, going on down the line, I look at the future. All right? I could look at the future. What's out there? What kind of bumps and bruises could be ahead of you in your life? I don't know. Tim and I have been watching the progress of some people who, whose lives in the last month were shaken, just, just completely shaken. Young people who were going one direction and everything seemed, loved the Lord, and were going, seeing everything seemed to be going this direction, and all of a sudden things happen, and their whole world is turned upside down, and it's turned upside down in a way where it's not just you get through this and then you'll, you'll go on, What's turned upside down is going to is going to be with them till the end of their life. Right? You begin to that you look at that and say, <gasps> How do you have joy and peace when you think of all the things that could go wrong? <laughs> Maybe you don't think about that. I do. Right? That's that's what the Lord's bestowed on me. A nature that looks at the world and says, It's a dangerous place out there. And I could tell you fifty reasons why. But I'm not going to tell you tonight. Because if you haven't figured it out, that's okay. Just don't don't worry about it. But what's the hope out there? Right? Well, I'm going to have joy and peace when I start believing. And one of the things that Paul says, again, it's just one of them. I'm just picking, I'm cherry picking here. Everything is working together for good. When God put his love on me, he, he captured me. And nobody else has a right to touch my experience outside of him. Nobody. Nothing. Not any virus, not any drunk driver, not any, uh, well, you name it. Not any politician, not any foreign power, not any criminal, not any anything. Why? Because God said to those who are, are his, it's all going to work together for good. If I take hold of that by faith, what happens? He begins to give to me a backdrop of joy and peace. You see, it's joy and peace in believing. It's not just something he pours on. When Paul tells, talks about, um, it's why he says to rejoice in the Lord. You rejoice because of who he is. When he goes on to say, don't be anxious about anything. There's a tough verse for me. All right, don't be anxious for anything. I got a lot of things I could be anxious about. But don't be anxious for anything, he says. What? But in everything by prayer and supplication. Put it on the Lord's, you know. Let your request be made known to God. Where is your difficulty? Well, here it is. Okay, put it on God. You see, if I do that, then the peace comes. It's not the peace that passes understanding. Now, this is my own belief on this one. I'll just, again, there's different ways you can interpret that. It's not that it's beyond understanding to me. I know how the peace came. I'm trusting the Lord. He's taking care of it. That's why there's peace. But to a person who doesn't know the one they can't see, who doesn't know that the one they can't see is faithful, the response of peace doesn't make any sense. And I want to say for those people that I, I was, I'm talking about, the payment I've been praying for and following, they have glorified God by expressing joy and peace in ridiculously difficult circumstances. But they know God, and they're not going to be moved. And and that's I have 
I've rejoiced at least to be able to watch. A, well, it's a sister, and particularly one of them, who has responded. But it's joy and peace in believing. Now, the best part of this is that that's not the goal. That's not the goal of Paul's prayer. You'd think that would be pretty good, right? That I should have an experience of joy and peace. No. He says, the reason I want you to have joy and peace is so that, this could happen, what? You might abound in hope. Right? You might abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You might abound in hope. You see, the high point of the discussion of the gospel is when Paul says, there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God. I am safe for all eternity. No matter what happens on this earth, you are a wealthy person who will experience something which is is really wonderful. That's why Paul could say, as he expresses hope, I'm convinced that the, the temporary light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us an ex- a more exceeding weight of glory. There's way more out there than this little bump in the road. And Paul, as we've mentioned many times, his road was really bumpy. He must have been one, if you had seen his back, it must have been one continuous mass of scars. Who knows how many of his bones, by the time he reached the Lord's presence, had been broken from all the things he went through. He was rejected by the people that, uh, his, his fellow countrymen. He was rejected by people who he was trying to minister to. He had been deserted by, so he had, on every way you can be hurt. You can, again, if he listed out, I'm just taking his list. He had been hurt, but what's he say? Eh, light affliction. No big problem. Why? Because I've got something out there. I've got something out there. Now, Paul prays that God would give you, would give to the people who have joy and peace in believing so that they might abound in peace because or in hope because they needed to have hope. We need to have hope. We need to have a confidence about what's out there so that today I can do the will of God so that I don't have to get nervous about what's out there, and I don't have to be thinking about this. I can entrust that to God and live in the immediate present with power. And the Spirit of God wants you to be in that place. Right? That's tremendous, right? That's the prayer. Now, what do we learn from Paul in this? Paul was brave enough to pray that. One of the things that you will find as we're going through Paul's prayers is, They are big prayers. They are not long prayers. They're not complicated prayers. There's nothing difficult about them. They're straightforward. But they are filled with faith. They are big prayers. God has done a big work in Jesus Christ. and He did it so that we could be set free. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I don't know how you view the... the bondage but the bondage as far as i'm concerned comes in two forms it is the bondage of the emptiness of life on this earth apart from jesus christ the futility of it the fact that it all no matter how much i put into the effort on this earth i die and it fades away all right the second problem we have <laughs> that we need to be delivered from we need to be set free from is the fear it's the mentioned so many times. Fear not is the most common command of the Scripture because that is the condition of the human heart. And yet we are set free. If if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. He came to do that. We make a mistake sometimes, I think. I'm going to talk about me making a mistake. I pray little prayers. I pray for Band-Aids when we need to have heart transplants. I'm praying for the the fixing up of a little part of this circumstance. Paul looked at the big picture. There is a great gospel, he said. A great gospel which sets you free from the guilt of sin, which sets you free from the power of sin, which gives you the Spirit of God to enable you, which makes you a child of God, which gives you eternal 
security and hope. Now, you ought to live a certain way. He's not commanding them. He's not coming here and saying, now beating them up with, now where are you tonight? That's not the problem. The, the question is, where are we going to be? He's not commanding them. He's not beating them up with regard to the fact that they're falling short and they're not experiencing this. Saying, now may God let you see it. May God let you grab hold of the gospel in such a way that the backdrop of your whole soul is joy and peace, which leads you to a place where in that confidence you can begin to see that the future's safe and you can begin to live the way you ought to live in the immediate present. Great prayer, huh? Paul says pray without ceasing. You're going to pray without ceasing because it's possible that God could bring that to pass in every life in this room. And Paul wasn't, wasn't content to just tell them and then leave it at that. He was going to tell them and then he was going to turn from them to the one who could bring it to pass. He's not talking to them now. He's not talking to us. He is then turning to the one who can bring this to pass and saying, Lord, bring it to pass. Bring it to pass in us. Bring it to pass in me. Bring it to pass in every person in this room so that in this day, filled with joy, filled with peace, and abounding in hope, strengthened by the Spirit of God, the purpose of God can be fulfilled. Great prayer. Paul's a big prayer. Not a long prayer. Right? Short prayer. He got all that into one verse. But it's powerful praying because he's trusting living God. Are we trusting him in our prayers? That's that's a big question. Are we are we gonna be we're gonna ask the Spirit of God to make us bold enough to ask him to fulfill his word in the lives of the people around us, in our own lives? Are we gonna be bold enough for that? We're going to listen to Paul. We're gonna pray like he probably prayed. We're gonna have to let the Spirit of God bring us up to that level. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thanking you for the greatness of salvation in Jesus Christ. And we're asking you to individually bring us into that. Lord, it's your desire. You are the God of hope. We thank you for all that you've done to create the opportunity for it. Now, Father, bring it to pass in our lives for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.